You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, we are continuing to make our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. And my comments by way of introduction this morning are just to pull us into Romans chapter 8, which is where we find ourselves this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open them to Romans 8. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 26 through 30. And if you haven't been here the last few weeks even, don't worry about that. Hopefully these comments in the next few moments will bring you along and help you to understand the context in which Paul writes verses 26 to 30. At the beginning of Romans 8, we rejoice over the statement of fact, the declaration that Paul makes, that there is therefore now no condemnation. How much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. This is because the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, has set us free from the law as a covenant of works to be kept for righteousness or to be broken for condemnation. God did what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. There was nothing wrong with the law. It's good and holy and righteous and true, but we are corrupt in Adam. And so God did what the law weakened by our flesh could not do. Namely, he saved us. And he did this by sending his son in the likeness of our flesh to keep the law and to die for sin. So that all of the requirements of the law, both its penalty and its precepts might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, for those of us who walk by faith in Christ and submit to God's righteousness. In verses 5 to 17, Paul wrote that those who are according to the spirit, those who walk by faith in Christ and receive the righteousness of God in Christ, have eternal life and have peace with God. Though our bodies will die, a day is coming when our bodies will be raised without corruption by the power of the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. We, in Christ, are adopted sons and daughters of God, says Paul. He is to us no longer a judge. He is our Father, and we call him that. Because we've been adopted as his children, we are now God's heirs. And that inheritance is certain because it belongs to Jesus and we have been united to Christ. What is Christ's is ours. We will be heirs with him. In verse 17, Paul alludes to the fact that Jesus came to this inheritance through the cross. And that we too will possess our eternal inheritance through suffering, not through triumphant ease. Beginning in verse 18, Paul encouraged us that though suffering is our reality now, the present sufferings pale in comparison to the glory that's coming. That does not mean that the sufferings are small in and of themselves. Often they are great. That is a statement about how wonderful 
how incomprehensibly glorious what awaits us is. For now, says Paul, the entire creation is groaning. Groaning for that day. And we also groan. Groaning for the redemption of our bodies, for the consummation of our adoption as children of God. And for now, we hope what, for what we do not see. We don't see our salvation now, but we live by faith and we live in hope. We wait for what the Lord has promised and we wait with patience. We live by faith in the Son of God. Though you have not seen him, beloved, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Not with other, but with these very own eyes, we will see the Lord. Until that day, you know this, and I know this. Until that day, though, there will be weakness. And I mean weakness in us. It's not just that we will suffer. We will. It is also that we will be weak. Given that, given the reality of suffering, and given the reality of our weakness, how can we, weak sinners as we are, have assurance? How can we have peace? How can we know that we know that we know that all will be well? Is there comfort to be found for even weak sinners who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's look to the text. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. We thank God for his word. My plan this morning is simple. I effectively want to preach this message in two parts. And we're going to reflect and apply as we go. And I will aim to make that as plain for you as I can. Part one, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. So is there hope for weak sinners? You better believe there is, because the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Verses 26 and verses 27. Put your eyes on verse 26. You see how Paul begins, Likewise, 
The Spirit helps us in our weakness. That word rendered helps is a a forceful word. It indicates not only that the Spirit comforts us in our weakness, though that's a thing, but he also, alongside comforting us in our weakness and in our infirmities, he helps us carry them. The very Spirit of God gets under the burden with us. In verses 24 and 25, Paul had written of hope. He had written of patience. Those things are good, and they are worked in us by the Holy Spirit. But what Paul writes of here in verse 26 is an even greater comfort. Deep down, we know that if we are not supported by God Almighty himself, then we will be quickly overcome by any number of things in this life. We know that's true. It's good that we would own our condition and yet hope in the power of God. As Robert Haldane writes, Christians have at present many infirmities, not a few, many. They are in themselves altogether weakness, in ourselves altogether weak. But the Holy Spirit dwells in their hearts and is their strong consolation. Amen, someone. Paul goes on. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't know about you, but that sentence is of great comfort to a sinner like me. How often have you found yourself in a situation, in a circumstance, where you don't know what to pray? We don't know what to pray for as we ought. Thank the Lord for words like that in the Scripture. It lets us know that we are not uniquely weak. There is not something uniquely wrong with me or with you. This is the experience of the saints, this side of the resurrection. This is the depth of our weakness and even the depth of our ignorance. I'm not trying to insult anyone, but it's true of us as fallen men and women. We are not adequately acquainted with the dangers that we face, nor are we adequately acquainted with what we actually need. We think we know, but we don't know. We take great encouragement from the words that the Spirit of God himself intercedes for us. In verse 16 of Romans 8, we learned that the Spirit has a word for us. The Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. We're thankful that he does that. And here, we learn that he helps us in prayer, and he even intercedes for us, given that we so often don't know what to pray. It's quite a thought. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, even now, interceding for you and me. And the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our very own hearts and intercedes for us from there. Praise the Lord for the unity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit to save his people. We are in, clearly, we are in desperate need of the Spirit's work that is described in this verse. 
Our minds and our hearts are often distracted and disturbed and confused. And this is because we're battling our own corruption, indwelling sin. And this is because we encounter suffering in this life that is often difficult. Heartbreak. So let's think, let's reflect together for just a moment from verse 26. It is clearly the Lord's will. I just want to say these things at the outset. It is clearly the Lord's will that we come to him in prayer when we feel weak. That we come to him in prayer when we are distracted, when we are tempted, when we have sinned. I use the word when because I think there is such a tendency in us to not go, to be hesitant. We want to wait until we've cleaned a few things up or we've done some things. We've gotten ourselves into an appropriate emotional state and then we can go to God. We shouldn't think that way. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord. He is the one to whom we must go in the midst of weakness and struggle and even in the midst of sin. There is much that could be said about that. There is much that could be said about how the Lord hears brief and honest prayers. Lord, give me grace. Help me. The Lord hears those things and answers them. But what Paul writes of in verse 26 is even more encouraging than what I've just been speaking about. There are times that things are hard enough and painful enough. There are times that we are weak enough and lack perspective enough that we cannot express ourselves in prayer at all. What then? Are we done for? Are we just to be left destitute and prayerless? From verse 26, we should understand and take to heart that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and works in our hearts to produce groanings that cannot be put into words. You've had this experience, so have I. We're mindful of the struggle that we're in, circumstantially maybe, or the struggle that we're in with our own flesh, fighting against cravings and desires and thoughts that I'm having, whatever. You've been there. We even in those moments have a burning desire in our hearts to go to God. But we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We're battling shame and guilt and all kinds of stuff in our consciences. And we're a mess inside. Paul had grown that way. He had grown that way. Wretched man that I am. That's groaning. Asaph wrote of his groaning in Psalm 77. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Then this, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. That's groaning. Peter, after he had denied the Lord Jesus, groaned. There are no words recorded. You remember after his third and final denial, and then in Luke's gospel in particular, we get the detail of the eyes of Jesus meet Peter's. No words, but Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him, and he went out and wept. Bitterly. It's groaning. 
repentance. There was the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And the only thing she could come up with is, if I can just touch his garment. There was the woman of the city who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. All of these, I could, I could recount more, are examples of how the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of the saints to draw out groanings that are too deep for words. The Spirit is with us in the groaning, and He is interceding for us according to the will of God. That we, and what is that will? That we would ultimately be conformed to the image of Christ. That's where Paul is going in the coming verses. Put a pin in that for just a second. Verse 27. Let's look back to the text. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God knows what these groanings mean. That's a comfort. We're in the thick of it. We don't know what to make of much. We have thoughts and feelings even related to God, but we have no ability to express them in an intelligible way. But God is not deterred. And the Spirit is at work. God is the one who searches hearts. He has perfect knowledge of the hearts of man. We're told that the Father knows the mind of the Spirit because He and the Spirit are one. And it is the Spirit who is producing the groanings of the saints. So how much then does the Father know and understand these groanings? We can know that our groanings will be heard because they're the intercession of the Holy Spirit. And we know that these groanings will be answered because they are according to the will of God, says Paul. May your heart be encouraged in prayer, but may your heart be encouraged to know that even in those times, in those moments, in those seasons where prayer seems difficult, that you are not without an intercessor. The Holy Spirit himself does that work for you. And he works in us to produce groanings that we didn't put there. Longings for righteousness. Longings for the new heavens and the new earth. Grief over sin. It's the work of the Spirit, not our work. Be encouraged. Part two, which will be a little bit longer than part one. Part two, we will be conformed to the image of Christ. We will be conformed to the image of Christ. Verses 28 to 30. Saying that we will be conformed to the image of Christ is another way of saying that we will be saved. Understand this. The fact that we will be conformed to the image of Christ is a statement about the fact that we will be saved because... Our being conformed to the image of Christ is the goal of God's eternal covenant of redemption. The plan that existed before the foundation of the world where the Son and the Father agreed to save a people by the work that the Son would accomplish, the goal of that is that we would be conformed to the Son's image, that we would dwell with Him. We'll get to that in more depth in a moment. But when you hear 
conformed to the image of Christ, hear salvation. Verse 28. We are familiar with this verse. It's probably on a number of refrigerators, just by the households represented here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let's acknowledge this at the outset, that Christians often find themselves in the midst of sorrow. We suffer, we endure trials, we face temptations, we encounter spiritual dangers. Also important, these things in and of themselves are not good. A lot of times we speak in a way where we we mean to sound godly, we mean to be encouraging, and we say things that are just patently false. Suffering and trials and persecution, all of those kinds of things, infirmities in and of themselves are bad. They are not joyous. They are grievous to people. But what God does, that's the thing. What God does is direct all of these things for our ultimate and eternal good. That's the miracle. That's the supernatural piece. See, Paul is anticipating and removing yet another objection here. He does this beautifully throughout this letter. They keep throwing them in. He keeps knocking them out of the park, right? He anticipates objections and removes them. See, it's our instinct and our suspicion that the troubles and the sufferings of this life, including our own weakness, might very well hinder our salvation. It is our instinct and submission that the troubles and the sufferings of this life may very well wreck the whole thing. And let's just say right now that if salvation is based on anything in us or done by us, that would be entirely true. If you or I had to contribute anything, that suspicion that weakness and suffering and trials might wreck this thing would be true. In this life, the redeemed suffer just like everyone else. We experience affliction, great sorrow, and the redeemed still sin too. The difference though, is that for his people, God works in and through suffering and affliction and sorrow and sin to prepare us for salvation. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. Many know and love it. Know that sentence in there, that actually in Christ, yea, in Christ, all things are subservient to my salvation? Exactly. Even bad things in this life are subservient to our salvation because God is God. There are two phrases used in verse 28 to describe the saints. One is those who love God, and another phrase is those who are called according to his purpose. Both are true. The saints do love God. Amen. We do. Though we've not seen him, we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. And we love him because he called us effectually and adopted us into his family. Our religion, brothers and sisters, is true because God has brought us along by his very own hand, not because we have attained to something through our own efforts. 
God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 2 Timothy 1.9. The unshakable purpose of God to save his people from all of eternity is the foundation of everything that Paul is writing in Romans 8. Everything. Put your eyes now on verse 29. Paul's going to continue to drive home the certainty of our future glory by pointing to the source of it. That source is none other than God himself. We read, for those whom he foreknew. Let's talk about this foreknowledge for just a second. We're not going to camp out here, but a few comments are warranted. It is true that God knows everything before it happens or comes into existence. He knows everything. That's true. It is also true that God foreknows all things because he's planned all things. But what is meant here is an even more significant and personal foreknowledge. This is the foreknowledge of love and affection and approval. One of choosing and of recognizing us as his own. This is a Romans 11.2 kind of feel. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God had loved them and chosen them and therefore will not reject them. This is a Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 kind of vibe, right? The Lord loves you because he loved you. And he set his grace upon you. And he's keeping the promises that he made in grace to your fathers, right? It's that kind of foreknowledge. Paul continues on. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So those whom God loved and chose and recognized as his own, he also appointed an end for them. And that end is to be conformed to the image of God the Son. We will be conformed to Christ in his suffering. Romans 8, 17, provided we suffer with him, right? We will be conformed to his image in that sense, and we will also be conformed to him in his character, in his being. Listen, think about this. God, in the beginning, made man in his image. That means a host of things, but it is significant that God made man in his own image, knowing that God the Son would become man. In the fall of Adam, the image of God in us was corrupted. But God had determined in eternity past, in this eternal covenant of redemption, to save a people from the mass of fallen humanity, And in those whom he would save, his image would be restored. And that would happen precisely through God the Son becoming a human being. He would save us, and we would be conformed to his image. We would see him as he is. We will be like him. Consider these words. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. This has been the goal of God from before the beginning, that we would be conformed to the image of God the Son in this way. Our union with Christ by faith means that even now our souls are being conformed to his image, 
and at his return, our bodies will be made like his glorious body. We will be conformed to the image of the Son. Paul goes on. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Again, see how all of this is the purpose and the plan of God. In this eternal covenant of redemption, the reward that God the Son would receive for his work was a people. The nations will be your inheritance. Psalm 2 7, 2 8. These people that the Son would receive, that he would inherit, would be resurrected. They would dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. This people that the Son would inherit would be a multitude that no one can count. The Son would die for them. He would bear their iniquities. He would be their righteousness. He would bring, through his suffering, he would bring many sons to glory. And as he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ, our great king, our elder brother, our covenant head, we will be with him resurrected, incorruptible, and imperishable. We'll dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. We will see him as he is, and then he will be preeminent in all things to our joy and to the glory of God the Father. This is what awaits. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So those whom God predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, he called. Now this calling is an inward, effectual calling. It is the drawing and the quickening of the Holy Spirit that accompanies the word of Christ. Consider how Paul writes of himself in Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. This is what Paul writes of his own conversion. This is what happens for every child of God. Set apart before we were born, called by God's grace. Not anything we've done, not anything we might do, not anything God looks into our hearts and our souls and our persons and sees that we might do. Called by his grace and in it, in that calling, God reveals his son to us. And then when that happens, this is another conversation for another day, but when that happens, when God calls us in grace and reveals his son to us, we come freely and we come joyfully. No one is drugged, kicking and screaming to Jesus. We come to Christ because we want to come to Christ. We come to Christ because in that moment, we don't know everything, but we know that we need him. 
And that is the grace of God that we have had the Son of God revealed to us. And upon seeing Him, we believe in Him and we trust Him and we cast ourselves wholly upon Him. Those whom God predestined, He called. And those, Paul goes on, whom He called, He also justified. We have spent a lot of time in the book of Romans considering justification. But for now, let's say this. Though we were ungodly, God graciously counted the very righteousness of Christ to our account. He forgave us of real sin. He absolved us of real guilt. By faith, through our calling, we are united to Jesus and we have been restored to God's favor. And that favor is never going away. Never. Paul continues, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are justified the moment we believe in Jesus. The moment we trust him and are united to him, we are justified. And here, Paul yet again connects present justification with final salvation. To be justified means you will be glorified. What is glorification, you might ask? A lot we could say. But it is to see Jesus as he is. It is to be like him. It is to have our bodies made like his glorious body. It is to be raised incorruptible and imperishable. When we are glorified, death will be swallowed up in victory. When we are glorified, our tears will be wiped away by the Lord. When we are glorified, Jesus will be our king forever and God will dwell with us. And here's the thing. No believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will fail to attain this. No believer. At this present time, only Jesus is glorified. True. But given that he is our head and we are united to him, what is true of him is a certainty for us. It is so certain that Paul can write of it in the past tense. It is as good as done to be justified, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be united to him by faith is to be finally saved. Book it. To conclude our time, we're going to reflect on some of these wonderful truths. And there is so much, as a preacher, this is one of those texts where you're like, Lord, just be merciful, because there is so much to say. We could preach sermons and sermons and sermons on these verses. We trust the Lord in it. Let's reflect for a moment. I've got kind of two separate reflections for us to conclude our time. First of them, let's think together and reflect together about God working all things for our good. God working all things for our good. I'll lead off by saying this, by all things... Paul means all things. Think of how Paul had been encouraging the saints. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. We've become heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, partakers of eternal glory. The glory is so great that even the greatest sufferings in this life, they pale by comparison. 
Paul had encouraged us to hope and wait for this glory with patience, even as we presently groan. He then comforted us by telling us that the very spirit of God himself is at work in us in the midst of our weakness and our groaning, and that God hears and accepts this work of the spirit on our behalf. He's written all that. It only follows then that Paul would conclude that all things without exception work together for our eternal good under the direction of our good, all-wise, and all-powerful Father. Do we really mean all things, though? Yes, we do. There are wonderful words in our confession of faith. Consider these from chapter 5 and paragraph 5. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin, and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. What else could be true of the saints? God is our Father. Christ is our Shepherd. The Spirit is our Helper. What else could be true? A good question to ask, though, in the midst of the present suffering, where there is so much that we don't see, what does wisdom look like? What does wisdom look like? Well, we begin here. We look to Christ alone for forgiveness. We look to Christ alone for righteousness. We look to Christ alone for eternal life. We start there. We start here as well. We look to Christ, not our lives, not our circumstances. We look to Christ as the evidence that God loves us and that he is graciously inclined toward us. And then we take the Lord at his word. We believe him that though we don't understand, he works all things for our ultimate and eternal good. He works all things to prepare us for our salvation. We trust his character that he's good and faithful and true, that he always does what he says, that he has never taken back a promise. In the midst of all that, we acknowledge that we lack perspective. We acknowledge that there is so much that we don't know. It's like Job at the end of that book. You're familiar with the account. Where Job has wrestled for 30-some-odd chapters. There's a lot that we could glean from that. But God's word to him is effectively, child, you do not understand. Wisdom means, in the midst of the hard, in the confusing, where we look at it and we think, there is no earthly good in this whatsoever. We don't fall into the trap of trying to discern exactly what the Lord is doing in every particular circumstance. We don't 
Try to discern exactly what he's doing in every instance of grief and suffering or in every trial. We don't spend our days trying to read the tea leaves. We don't try to read through every line of providence. Now, we're thoughtful. We concern ourselves with what God has said in his revealed will, the scriptures. And we live honest, open lives in the local church, trusting that the Lord will often teach and guide us through other believers. And then, at the end of every day, we pillow our heads in peace, knowing that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but that the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, and that that is a good thing, and that he is trustworthy. Lastly, I want to reflect for just a moment on the the great statement that's made in the book of Jonah that Romans 8, 26 to 30 bears out, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's reflect on that. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and thank God it does. I hope you feel that. Sometimes when we encounter this in the Scriptures, that salvation belongs to the Lord, that we could do nothing and have done nothing, that it is grace and mercy alone, apart from anything that we feel or think, have done or could do, that God has determined to save his people from before the foundations of the world. When we read and encounter these things sometimes, it can be difficult for us. Let's acknowledge that. In our human reasoning, it can be hard. It can be hard at the heart level. Now, some of this could be because the people who have pointed these things out to us have been condescending and jerkish about it. That's very likely. But consider how good it is, how good it is that God has done the following things. Not not us, God. That he has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That he has caused us to be born again. That he has made us alive together with Christ. That he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That he has called us effectually by his spirit through the word of Christ. That he has justified us. He has. That he is sanctifying us, right? Union with Christ means we will be sanctified. And that God will glorify us. How good is that? Consider the goodness of that in particular. Anytime you read the Bible and you are struck by how holy God is, which you should be, so should I. We should be struck by how holy he is. Thank the Lord that he saves. Anytime you read the Bible, and are struck by the holiness and the perfect standard of the law, which you should be. So should I. Anytime you read in the scriptures of what is required for righteousness, and you think, I ain't got it, man. Anytime you read of the sinfulness and the hard-heartedness and the weakness and the corruption of mankind, and you think, yeah, that's me. 
Anytime that happens, remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Remember that Jesus redeemed those who were under the law. Remember that Jesus purchased his people with his own blood. Remember that Jesus came to do the work of redemption, and his own assessment of that work was it is finished, complete, nothing left to do. Remember that the Lord is the one who says to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Remember when you're struck by God's holiness and the standard of the law and your sin and what's required of righteousness, remember that God the Son, when he was on earth, said that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Thank God that it is that way. Our assurance and our comfort and our strength are found in the fact that our salvation takes rise in the eternal counsel of God himself. And our assurance and our comfort and strength are found in the fact that God is the one who brings our salvation into effect at every step. We are not strong enough. We are not sufficient for these things. Which is why, again, we rejoice over truths like this. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them to be the mediator between God and humanity. God chose him to be prophet, priest, and king, and to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world. From all eternity, God gave to the son a people to be his offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by him. That's 8.1 in our confession. A few paragraphs later, regarding Jesus as mediator, as prophet, priest, and king, we have these wonderful words. Because we are ignorant, we need his prophetic office. Amen. Because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us to God as acceptable. Amen. Because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God, and so that we can be rescued and made secure from our spiritual enemies, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. Praise the Lord. Beloved, if we are in fact masters of our fates and captains of our souls, if we must contribute something, 
then our salvation is very fragile indeed. We are blown around regularly. We are easily moved. To look to ourselves in any sense for anything is to be like the man who built his house on the sand. When the storms come and the floods arise, our house will be swept away. But to look to Christ and to rest and trust in him alone is to be like the man who built his house on the rock. When storms come and floods arise, our house will stand because it is built on the rock of Christ himself. This is maybe the way that I like to speak. I hope it encourages you. Um, if you walk out of here today with something, maybe this will be a, give you some strength in your heart. Bottom line, beloved, if we could blow this thing, we would. If we could blow this thing, we would. If we could wreck it, we would wreck it. If we could lose it, we would lose it. But as it stands, Christ has us all. Everyone who is united to him by faith, he will keep. Everyone. I know I've read a lot from our confession this morning. I don't really make apologies for that. I'm going to read one more paragraph because it's written so well, and I want to leave you with these words regarding the fact that you and I will persevere because God will preserve us. In the Lord Jesus, he will. Let these words wash over you and strengthen your soul. Those God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end, and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. He will not take them back. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. The felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them for a time through their unbelief and the temptations of Satan. Yet God is still the same they will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation, where they will enjoy their purchased possession. For they are all engraved on the palms of his hands, and their names have been written in the book of life from all of eternity. Amen. My love is oftentimes cold. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with him remains the same. Why? No change, Jehovah knows. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. We thank God for Jesus Christ and the certainty of our salvation because he is ever faithful. And though we may fail, he will never fail us. Let's go to him now in prayer.